You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke 13. Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And we have been going through the Gospel of Luke now since Christmas and um, the entirety of Luke 13 this morning. In, In chapter 12, it ends with Jesus giving a call to salvation, with Jesus basically saying, it's wise for you to settle out of court with God. It's wise for you not to stand before your judge having your sin to be accountable for because you're guilty. What's wise for you is to stand before God having an advocate who is Jesus Christ. And he wants to settle out of court with you. And it's a call to salvation is what we saw there at the end of chapter 12. And really now Jesus, Luke, recording the words of Jesus, describes the means, at least the means from a human perspective, by which we are saved. The means by which we are saved. We know that Jesus is the one that brings salvation. It's by grace. It's what He did for us, not what we do for God. But there is a responsibility on our part to respond to that. There is a responsibility on our part to come to Jesus and to receive what He's done for us. And it's a nasty little word that we don't like a whole lot. It's a, it's a nasty word that some people, even in the church, avoid and don't want to use. And a lot of preachers don't use the word anymore. The word is repentance. We don't like that word because it sounds kind of difficult. It sounds kind of harsh. It sounds like something I don't know that I want to be involved with. Repentance? Uh, I don't know. But Jesus talks a lot about repentance. In fact, the, the ministry of Jesus was kicked off with John the Baptist saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus gave his first message centered around repentance. And so repentance is a major theme in the Bible. What does it mean to repent? It simply means to turn from the direction that you're going in the opposite direction. Now, often when we think about repentance, we think about dirty, rotten, filthy people getting right. We think about sinners and changing their ways. But we have to remember that Jesus in this passage and most of Jesus' messages were aimed at and focused upon religious people, moral people. And yet He told them to repent. He told them to turn from the direction they were going in a different direction. So what does that mean? If repentance is simply that I'm becoming a better person, that right now I'm living this immoral lifestyle and now I'm going to turn away from that, that's not all that repentance is. Jesus develops repentance into more than that. Repentance is turning from your opposition to God toward God. And you can be opposed to God in a number of different ways, but typically they are in two categories. Your opposition to God. It normally sort of falls into two categories. The first will be the type that you're probably thinking of. Immoral people, sinful people, dirty, rotten sinners. And we all have those images in our mind. It never looks like us, though. It never looks like my sin. It's somebody else's sin. And so maybe it's homosexuality. Maybe it's uh, pedophilia. Maybe it's rape. Maybe it is uh, drug abuse. Those are the things you think of. Yeah, that guy needs to repent. 
The guy stumbling down the, the street, hooked on meth. The, the guy on TV that was busted for sexually abusing little kids. Yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy that needs to repent. It doesn't often look like us. But Jesus is going to tell us that we all need to repent. Every one of us. Not only the people that look like they're in opposition to God, the people whose sins are very, very conspicuous, but also those who are moral people who are using that morality as a way to earn favor with God, who are using that morality to leverage God and to say to God, you owe me now. I've been a good person. And maybe you're in that boat because maybe right now you're going through some trials. Maybe you're going through trials financially. And what you're saying to God is, God, I'm a good person. I've been living morally. I've been doing everything you've asked me to, and now you do this to me? See, it's the elder brother syndrome in the, the prodigal son story. Both the younger son, the prodigal son, and the elder son were both in opposition to God. They just went about it different ways. The prodigal son was the immoral sinner. The very conspicuous kinds of sins. He went and blew all his money on prostitutes and partying. And we say, that guy needs to repent. But the fact is, so did the elder brother. Who, by his moral living, was trying to leverage his father. He wanted the same thing that the younger brother wanted. His dad's stuff. They just went about it in different ways. And so wherever you're at on that pendulum, whether you're the partier, whether you're the conspicuously immoral person, or whether you are the moral person, the goody tushus, the one that's always done the right thing, it, it doesn't matter where you're at, you need to repent. You need to turn from that opposition to God, whatever it is, that thing that is keeping you from Jesus. You need to repent from that and turn to Him. That's the, the message of our passage this morning. And the first thing that we see in verses 1 to 5 is the call to repentance. It says there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so apparently there were some Jewish people from Galilee that had pilgrimaged down to Jerusalem, to the temple. They were offering sacrifices, which you could only do in the temple, and they were murdered by Pilate and his mob of lynchmen. And, and it was a, a famous story, apparently, that Jesus is calling their attention to. It, this, this story where these Jewish worshipers were actually killed while sacrificing. And their blood was mingled with the sacrifice. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered such things? Because the Jewish mindset, and maybe it's your mindset, said that if something terrible happened to you, it was because God was judging you. If you were involved in some calamity, some kind of tragedy, if you died unexpectedly, it was God's judgment upon you. And that was what they thought. It's how they justified and explained things away. They would say, well, obviously that person was in sin and God was judging them. It's the same thing that happened after Katrina and after 9-11. Remember, really prominent Christians and leaders in the church were on the news saying that it was God's judgment. 
I, I heard one guy say, I won't mention his name, I heard one guy say that the reason why Katrina happened in Louisiana and in New Orleans was because of the, the rampant homosexuality down there and because of Mardi Gras. It's like, really? Because I'm pretty sure that all that stuff happens all over the place. And it's just ignorant kinds of things that, it, that were coming out of people's mouths to try to justify and explain away a natural disaster, religious zealots flying planes into buildings. We're, we're trying to explain these things away as God's judgment, exactly what they were doing in the time of Christ. Yeah, those Galileans that were worshiping, yeah, they were obviously being judged by God. Jesus says, I tell you, no, they weren't worse sinners than anybody else. That wasn't God's judgment. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And so unless you repent as well, you're going to be in the same boat that they're in. And that's what Jesus would say to us this morning. That you might look at people who are in rampant immorality. You might look at people who are living in in such a way that their lifestyle is opposed to God. And you might say, man, they need to repent or God's going to judge them. And the fact is, is that we need to look at our own heart. And we need to say, have I repented? Because God's judgment is upon me. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Again, not a biblical story, but one that was obviously familiar to them. 18 people were killed by this tower falling on them. Jesus says, do you think that they were sinners that were worse than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so we've got to get this idea out of our mind, number one, that tragedies are the result of God's judgment. Now they might be, but we don't know that and we ought to keep our mouth shut about it because we don't know what God's doing. And we look really ignorant when we say that God's judging people when we don't know that he is. And the second thing we need to see about that is that there isn't somehow a level of sin that God judges and that there's a level of sin that God accepts. We're all sinners. We all need to repent. We're all in opposition to God. We just manifest it differently. And the fact is, is that we need to repent. That's what Jesus is making true for every person on the planet. The call to repentance. The call to turn from the direction that you're going away from God, whatever that might be, whether it's the pursuit of money, whether it is rampant sin, whether it is moral living that is trying to leverage a relationship with God, whatever it might be, you need to repent from that. And Jesus calls us to repent. The second thing that we see in verses 6 to 9 is the fruit of, of repentance. And so when somebody repents, when somebody turns from the direction they're going away from God and turns toward God, there is fruit. There's fruit that will be manifested in their life. James talks about that. He says, look, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works because faith without works is dead. And we justify our relationship with God We justify and ratify our repentance by fruit. Not in the sight of God, but in the sight of men. People see our fruit and they know that there is repentance. They know there's been a change. And so if you were the goody-two-shoes kind of person your whole life, 
If you were the person that you always wanted acceptance, you always wanted people to be proud of you, you always wanted people to notice you and that you're better than others. Well, what that's going to look like when you repent is that you're no longer trying to get the approval of men. You're no longer trying to leverage yourself by being a good person. How that's going to look when you repent and you turn toward God is now you are giving up all of your morality and all of your own righteousness and you're saying it's all about Jesus and it's not about me. And I'm not trying to make myself look good. What I want to do is make Jesus look good because it's about him and it's not about me. If you were the type of person that was in opposition to God by rampant immorality, then when you repent, it's going to look like you're not doing that stupid stuff anymore. Now, maybe you struggle with it, and there's a pull, and you're kind of going back and forth, and there's an ambivalence there, but you're, you're not living in that lifestyle any longer. And if you still are, if you still are in opposition to God in either one of those things, and there's no fruit, then you truly need to look at your heart and say, Jesus, have I repented? Have I truly turned away from these things? Jesus spoke a parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. It was common to plant fruit trees in vineyards. And this man had a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, this is the owner speaking to the manager of his vineyard. He says, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Get rid of this thing. Why is it wasting space? Why is it sucking water and nutrients from our soil, and there's no fruit to be found on it whatsoever? He says, I've been coming for three years. And, and it was typical, and it was sort of part of uh, the, the Levitical culture of the day that you didn't pick fruit from a tree for three years. That you let that tree establish itself, that you let it uh, get very much uh, rooted into the ground and the fruit was kind of considered unclean for three years. And this man says, I've been coming for three years waiting to finally eat something off this tree. And here it is, now the year that I could do that and I come and there's no fruit on it. Let's get rid of this tree. But the vineyard manager answered, and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. And so what Jesus is calling for here is fruit that is worthy of repentance. The same thing John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3. Bear fruits that are worthy of repentance. That there are going to be tangible things in your life that indicate and substantiate your repentance, that you have a true and genuine relationship with Jesus. And like I've said many times, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when you repent and you ask Jesus to forgive you, to cleanse you, to wash you of your sin, and you repent by turning to Him, and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, which the Bible teaches us that He does. When He does, change happens. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to try. It just happens. And I like to relate it to a hurricane blowing through a trailer court. You're going to notice. You're going to see it. There's no question. Did it happen? 
And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you guys, there will be change. And if you don't see that change, if you don't see that fruit, you need to really get before the Lord and ask him, have I repented? Have I turned? I want to. I need to. There needs to be fruit for your repentance. The other thing that we see here is the heart of God. Because see, the owner of the vineyard wanted to just cut it down right there. Let's get rid of this thing. This is a waste of space. But that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is this vineyard manager, the one that's tending to the vineyard. And he said, you know what? Let it alone one more year. Give it time. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to see if I can cultivate some fruit. And that's what Jesus is doing in you right now. If you're a person who is not bearing fruit, John chapter 15 says that Jesus wants to prune you. And he he wants to cultivate fruit in you. And this tells us that he'll give you the, the space and the time to do that. But know this, there will come a point where you will no longer be given time. You see how it's one more year. There was a space given, but there was an end to that as well. And you guys, we're all living on borrowed time. We're not promised tomorrow. God's heart is one of compassion and one of grace, but he will not give us forever. And if you're playing games with God, if you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, you need to get that right today. There's no time. He's cultivating. He's pruning. He's tending your soil. He's working in your life so that you will produce fruit, so that you will repent. But if you have not, know that there will come a point where you will no longer have time. And I don't know about you, but that scares me to death. I don't know how people can play games with God. I guess it's because they don't really have a true relationship with Him, a true knowledge of Him. There's the fear of man, for sure, but there's no fear of God. We all have a natural fear, a fear of death, a fear of people, a fear of being injured and hurt. But some of us do not have a true, radical fear of God. We just simply don't believe that what he says is going to happen. But know this, it will happen. There will be a day of reckoning where you will be called into accountability for what you did with Jesus Christ. And how you know on this side of things is the fruit. When people look at your life like this vineyard owner looked at the tree, do they see fruit? Do they see evidence of life? Do they see evidence of Jesus in you? And if, if not, then you need to turn to Him. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to revolutionize your life. A third thing that, that we see in verses 10 to 17 in regard to repentance, in, in Jesus' charge toward repentance, is that religion is no substitute for repentance. And see, that's where I think a lot of people are at. They know they need to get their life right. They know they need to turn to God. And what they turn to is religion. And that's no substitute for repentance. Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity. Notice it was demonic in origin and in nature. For 18 years, she was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. And so for 18 years, this poor woman has been ravaged by a demon to the point where it has 
control of her spinal cord. And she's bent over. She's hunched over and can't raise herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and he said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. A couple things that we notice just sort of as asides is that Jesus called to her. She wasn't looking for Jesus. He called to her. He found her. His heart broke with compassion for her. Now, many times people do come to Jesus seeking him. Blind Bartimaeus, many of those in the New Testament that needed healing, the woman with the issue of blood, they came to Jesus. They called out to Jesus. But this woman is just coming to church. She's just showing up to a Jewish worship service in the synagogue like she had done her whole life. And she's jacked up. She's hunched over. Nobody cares about her except for Jesus. And maybe this morning you came with really no expectations. You really didn't come with any sort of idea of what God wanted to do in your life. And yet he wants to reach you. He wants to touch you. He wants to do amazing things in you. And you may not even be looking for it. But Jesus loves you. His heart breaks for you in whatever situation you're in. And that's what happened with this woman. Jesus reached out to her and notice also that he loosed her from her infirmity almost like he was casting a demon out of her. And so it was a a satanic influence upon this woman that was keeping her in this physical condition. Now, I don't want us to go around looking for the devil behind every door, but I think also in the church of 2009, we've sort of lost our grip and our grasp upon the supernatural and upon the spiritual, and we try to explain things away too much, I think. We've forgotten that we are in a spiritual battle and that the same things that were happening in the time of Christ are happening today. And so let's not just always assume that people who are being ravaged with physical maladies, let's not just always assume that there's a natural reason for that that we can just explain it away with medical terms how many times have you heard doctors say i don't really know what's wrong with that person i can't really explain what is happening i don't know what to do i think it happens a lot more than we think how many times do people go to the doctor and the doctor just says look i wish i could help you but i don't know i was just talking to the the rep for this new medicine that kind of sounds like Maybe what you're going through a little bit, why don't we prescribe you with that and we'll see if it works. And look, I'm not at all demeaning the medical system or doctors because I have a great deal of respect for them. It's amazing. But the fact is, is that we can't always assume that physical issues aren't also spiritual issues. and That people are being ravaged in a spiritual way and maybe they just need somebody like Jesus did to come and to pray for them and to talk to them about Jesus, and to release them from the bondage that they're in. That's what Jesus does. He loosed her from her infirmity, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, and this is the point I want to make, that religion is no substitute for repentance. Immediately, the ruler of the synagogue, the pastor, if you will, and you got to look out for pastors, Because sometimes they're the biggest hindrance to the work of God there is. It's amazing. Here is God 
in that place in human flesh and he misses him. He doesn't even know he's there. And now, not only does he miss him, but now he's going to be in direct opposition to the work he's doing. Man, that's not a place we want to be. We do not want to be in a place where we are in opposition to the work of God. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. He's ticked because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Oh my goodness. God, who created the Sabbath, is healing on the Sabbath. I think if God wants to heal on the Sabbath, we ought to just let him, right? But they didn't recognize Jesus as God, and that was the main problem. They missed Jesus. And you guys, when we miss Jesus, we can go to all sorts of weird places and do all sorts of weird things in the name of God when we miss Jesus. When Jesus isn't the focus, when he's not who we're pursuing, then we become dead and we become religion. We can have a church with Jesus in the name of the church. We can talk about Jesus. We can tell people about him. But when we miss Jesus in the point of why he came, then we have no idea where that will end up. Basically, it ends up with religion. It ends up with my good works, my effort, my ability to reach God in and of myself. That's what we leave people with when we miss Jesus. And that's what happens here. They miss Jesus. He's ticked because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He says, look, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The guy totally missed it. Here's this woman who has been ravaged for 18 years, and yet she's now been healed, and he doesn't care about that. What he cares about is his rules and his tradition. And the Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, because a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Essentially, Jesus is saying, what greater thing could happen on the Sabbath than a woman be healed? of an infirmity that Satan has had her in bondage to for 18 years. Look, you loose your donkey and your cattle and you allow them to go and water on the Sabbath because you have compassion for them and yet you don't have compassion for one of God's image bearers? Does it make sense? And a lot of things that we do in the name of Christianity that aren't in Jesus' name, that aren't focused on Jesus, don't make sense. Because religion, you guys, is no substitute for repentance. Religion is my attempt to get to God. And when I do that, I become a roadblock to the work of God. And the church is the greatest distraction from the work of God that there is. Because we're doing it in the name of God. We're doing it in, this is what you need to do for God to accept you. And what we find is that people say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And what we're doing is we're putting burdens and weights and responsibilities and expectations and rules upon people that God never did and never does. And we become actually a hindrance to the work of Jesus Christ. You and I are the greatest roadblock to the work of God if we're not focused on Jesus. We will distract and detour and send people running away from God if we're not focused on Jesus. 
if we don't have him at the forefront, if he's not what we're giving people, if he's not the best thing about us, the best thing about us, you guys, is not our morality. It's not our wisdom. It's not our ability to explain good reasons why people ought to believe in God. The best thing about us is Jesus. And that's what we have going for us. And you know what? People can say all that they want to say, and a lot of it is true about how we live in a post-Christian society, in a post-modern world, and people don't believe in absolutes, and people embrace pluralism, and people are more about humanism than they are theism, the worship of God. People are more about worshiping themselves and feel like they have goodness in them. And you know what? All of that is true. But the fact remains that we have Jesus. And people still have a respect and a level of sort of desire for Jesus. People want Jesus. They don't necessarily want the church, but people do like Jesus. Now, it may not be the Jesus of the Bible, but we have that as a platform to begin from, to launch from. And we need to take them back to the Jesus of the Bible. Not to religion, not to morality, not to rules and tradition, and oh, you can't do that, and oh, a certain day, and stupid stuff. And it wasn't just the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership of the day. We do it in the church, and we need to repent of that. And we need to get back to Jesus. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. And so his adversaries are becoming more opposed to him, and the multitudes are being drawn to him. The religious people hate Jesus, and the multitudes love him. It's interesting how that works. And so religion is no substitute for repentance. The next thing that we see is the result of repentance. The result of repentance. What happens when we repent, really on a corporate scale. We've seen it on a personal scale in the fruit that ought to happen in our life. The fruit of repentance. There, there ought to be fruit that comes about in our life that shows us that we've turned to God. But there's a corporate result of repentance as well. And it comes in the result of the kingdom of God being established in this world. And Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, there's a few things about this parable that ought to stand out to us. Number one, typically they didn't plant mustard in their gardens because it just sort of took over and it wasn't something that you really wanted in your garden. If you were going to grow mustard, you'd probably do it elsewhere. So this number one is, is unique. And the kingdom of God is unique. And a second thing is that the mustard seed was a very small seed. And what we learn here is the growth of the kingdom. That when we repent and God's kingdom is established, that it actually grows exponentially in ways that we never would have imagined. What started out as this little seed actually turns into this large tree. Now, a mustard plant really isn't a large tree. It it can be about eight feet tall, but it's no cedar of Lebanon or something like that scripturally. And so what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the growth of the kingdom of God is unique, it's exponential, it's something no one expected, and the birds of the air nest in its branches. 
It's a place where people come and they can be nourished and refreshed and built up. What started as this little tiny insignificant seed grows into something that no one ever expected it to become. That's the point of it. It is the growth of the kingdom. And that when we repent and we show fruit of our repentance, you guys, that we show that Jesus is real by our life, that that takes root in this world and his kingdom begins to be established corporately. A second parable that Jesus gives about the result of repentance, this result corporately, is not so much about growth as it is about influence. He says, and again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And so this lady takes a boatload of dough, she puts a little bit of leaven in it, a pinch of leaven, and it permeates the entire loaf. That's what yeast does. It permeates everything. It, it infiltrates. It influences everything. And you don't even see it. You, you can't even explain it. You don't see it happening. But the next thing you know, that dough is rising. It's influencing the entire batch. And that's what the kingdom of God does. What starts out as something fairly insignificant, seeds that are sown, a word that is spoken has great influence. And it will influence cities, communities, neighborhoods, families in ways that we could never imagine. We can't explain it. We don't really even have anything to do with it. We just are faithful to take God's word and to spread it to those we come in contact with. And let him work it into their lives. Let him influence the city. The kingdom of God will be built. That's the result of repentance. And when we think about the kingdom of God, for many of us, unfortunately, we have been raised with the idea that we're on this earth that really is just God's off-scouring. He, he just, you know, hates this world. It's going to hell, and it's all going to burn. And that's kind of the mentality that we have about the earth. And that God's going to fry the earth, and then we're going to all go to heaven. And it's this kind of get rid of this so that we can go here. And that couldn't be further from the truth biblically, and it couldn't be more destructive to our message practically. Because God doesn't want to destroy his creation. God wants to redeem it. That's why Jesus came. Not only to redeem you and me, but to redeem this earth. Look at Romans. The creation is crying out for redemption. And so everything that is glorious and godly and Jesus-like in this world, God is redeeming it. And that's what heaven's going to be like. Heaven's going to be like the Garden of Eden, the way God created us to exist. It's not floating around. It's not esoteric. It's not something that we can't conceive of. It's something that we can conceive of. It's called perfect life. And that's why when you look at your life and you see physical issues and you see financial issues and relational issues and you think, man, I just wish I didn't have to worry about money or I just wish my body wasn't falling apart and that I could just live life to the fullest or I just wish I had enough money to go and travel and see everything in the world. Or I wish I didn't have these relationship problems and this fighting and gossiping and backbiting. And then you think, 
wait, that's heaven. It's going to look a lot like earth, but redeemed, perfect, whole, complete. All the things that you wish you could do or that you wish you didn't have to do right now. And I recommend a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a great book and one that will help you to see that it's not about God (laughs) roasting the earth and then we all go to heaven some weird place that we can't conceive of. We got to get that out of our thinking because that evangelical weirdness that's been perpetuated for years, that doesn't really appeal to me. I I can't even conceive of what that's going to be like. But when I start reading about heaven in the Bible, and the Bible talks a lot more about it than we think, then I start to get stoked. And it gives us an even greater message to tell people about redemption. That, you guys, the cross was about redemption. God redeeming those things that were opposed to him and that were separated for him. And God redeeming his creation back to the way he intended it to be. And I say all that because Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this idea that the kingdom is only not yet, that it's just coming and that it isn't happening yet, that's what gives us this indication that we're going to heaven. It's somewhere else and that God's going to destroy the world now. And that isn't true. Jesus talks a ton about setting up his kingdom now. And it starts in our own heart. And so you guys, what you need to understand the kingdom of God like is now and not yet. Here and not yet. It's being set up in our heart, but it's not completed yet. Now we don't want to buy into this idea that the kingdom of God already exists and that we just you know, need to, to kind of do a little house cleaning. No, clearly, Jesus hasn't set up his kingdom yet, corporately. But it's happening and it starts in our heart. And one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set up his kingdom in totality. And he's going to redeem the earth. He's going to redeem us and put us in that place that he created us to be. And so see his kingdom as now in your heart and not yet. It's being established. It's both. And Jesus went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so next week, you guys, what I want to talk about is the difficulty of repentance. Jesus has called us to repent. He showed us the fruit of repentance. He showed us that religion is no substitute for repentance. And he showed us the result on a corporate level that his kingdom is being established that it's growing, that it's having influence. Even if you don't see it, it is. But then what we're going to see in this next section is the difficulty of repentance. That there are many who think they know God. That there are many who think they have a relationship with God when in fact they are opposed to Him. And the gate to heaven is narrow. It's difficult. Not everyone is going to heaven and not everyone sitting here is going to heaven. I wish it were true. I wish all of us were, but the gate is narrow. The way is difficult to find. Few find it. And many are going to stand before Jesus and say, I knew you. I went to church. I was involved in this. I did that. And he's going to say, I don't know you. 
Never had a relationship with him. We're going to talk about that next week. The difficulty of repentance. But you guys, the call has been for us to repent. The call has been for us to make sure that we've turned from that thing that has kept us from God and that we've turned toward him. And if you haven't done that, I would love to pray with you this morning. I would love to have the opportunity to talk to you about repentance and about turning from the direction you're going toward God. We're going to close with a song. And if, if that's you this morning, I just encourage you, don't leave here without repenting. Don't leave here without knowing that you know Jesus. And for those of us that do know him, and maybe you're looking at your life and you're saying, I don't see a lot of fruit. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of his work in my life. And I need him to cultivate. I need him to come alongside and to work in my life once again. I want there to be fruit. I want there to be evidence of his work in my life. Then work that out with Jesus this morning. Talk to him about that. Cry out to him. Call out to him for him to work in you once again. Maybe you came here this morning like the woman who was hunched over, that Satan had just bound her life, and you weren't looking for Jesus this morning. You just were showing up to church because it's the thing to do, and it's what you've always done, and it's the routine, and yet Jesus wants to minister to you. He wants to meet you this morning. And will you allow him to? Will you allow him to free you from the burdens and the bondages that you're experiencing? Will you allow Jesus to make you a part of his work, his kingdom work, in this time right now? His kingdom is growing. His kingdom is having influence. You might not think it does. You, you might think that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. It's just falling apart and God is losing and nothing is happening and it's not true. The Bible tells us differently. His kingdom is growing. His kingdom is having influence. His kingdom is being set up in your life and it is coming. We are a part of an amazing work of God. The question is, are you going to be a part of it? Are you going to be a part of establishing His kingdom, of allowing His kingdom to grow, of allowing His kingdom to have more influence, first in your life, then in your neighborhood, then in your community, then in your world, and ultimately, His kingdom will be set up for all eternity. And it's just going to be a natural transition of us working with God, co-laboring with God, establishing His kingdom, and then boom, there it is. It's not mundane living, nine to five, do this boring thing and I can't wait for Jesus to come back and then finally he does and he torches the world and then I get to go to this heaven I can't conceive of. You guys, we gotta get rid of that thinking. Eternity starts now. Eternity is here. It's among us. The kingdom is being established. Start living like that's true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. God, I pray that you'd work these truths into each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, you guys. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.